Chapter 15b of Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. With the origin of slavery, the present existing slaveholding population of the United States had nothing to do. Therefore, for that they are not to be held accountable. They did not bring the blacks from their native land, either by purchase or as prisoners of war. They came into existence with them in their possession, the same as their landed estates, and every other species of property which they inherited from their fathers, and are, therefore, under the divine supervision, morally and politically bound to protect and shield them from all physical suffering, the same as they are bound to protect and shield their children, apprentices, or other dependents. In this, the kind providence of that all-wise being, who rules among the inhabitants of the earth, is benevolently displayed toward the descendants of Ham in North America. The experience of the blacks themselves, and the observation of all others, prove this to be their most happy condition. For, with but few exceptions, all those who have gone out from this protection are found among the most miserable of the human family. All experience proves that were the principles of abolitionism carried out practically, the slaves would be placed in an infinitely worse condition, both morally and physically, than that in which we now find them. But, says the objector, this is the white man's fault. For if the negro man and woman were but received into society upon an equal footing with the whites, they would become their equals. This is granted. They would indeed become the equal of the white man. But how? Not by the elevation, morally, mentally, and physically, of the black man, but of the complete degradation of the white man as the God who created both races has decreed, and as is manifest from the difference, the radical difference, there is between them, proving that their amalgamation cannot be effected, but by a loathsome deterioration of the superior race. This the experience of all time abundantly demonstrates, as well as that amalgamation is the inevitable result of political equality of the races. Look, for example, at the population of the Mexican states. Not only is it characterized by physical weakness, but by moral and mental inferiority of a most frightful description. And how is this to be accounted for? From the fact that there has been a mixture of Mexican and Negro blood for ages. God forbid, therefore, that we, as a people, should seek to elevate this race by so great a sacrifice, by so horrible a violation and prostration of the sacred laws of the Creator of the universe. In all this we do not disparage the black man, but only set forth the actual difference there is between the races neither of which are to be praised or censured respecting the attributes of their respective natures. These were wisely ordained by that being 
who created all things, by the counsel of his own will, and the wisdom of whose appointments man has not the right to question. There is another evidence that the habitations of this race, the blacks, are of divine appointment, and that is that they are suited in their formation and physical constitution to a torrid region. As the torrid region of North America is, therefore, best suited to their comfort and happiness, we conclude it is their natural home. And as this country, through the providence of God, has been put into the power and ownership of the white race, and as the two races cannot exist together in a state of political equality, it follows that if the Negro race exist in the South at all as a people, it must be in a condition of surveillance or subordination of some sort or other. The Negro man has as good a right to exist as has the white man, but he has not as good a right to rule or give laws to society. This is evident from the black man's mental inferiority and consequent inability to discharge those high functions, as the history of the past and the observation of the present abundantly prove. This being true, we find that his place on the earth is that of surveillance of some description or other, and as the hand that formed them is good and munificent in his provisions and appointments for the comfort and support of all his creatures, we are irresistibly led to the conclusion that a condition of this character is the most conducive to the well-being and happiness of the negro race. But, says one, that one human being should become, under any circumstances whatever, the property of another human being, is abhorrent to all the conceptions of the human mind relative to what is right or wrong. On this subject, we may argue thus, and not become obnoxious to the charge of sophistry, as we fondly hope. It is the labor which a serving man or woman can perform that makes them at all valuable in the affairs of men. When a slave is transferred from one possessor to another, the labor which said slave may reasonably be considered capable of performing is the consideration of value that is taken into the account, and not the mere body of the servant. How differs, then, a transaction of this kind from those which are of daily occurrence in every civilized community, viz., the hiring of one individual to another to labor a specified time for a stipulated amount. The difference consists alone in the terms, not in the nature, of the transaction. For in either case, it is the labor of the individual that constitutes the thing of value. In the one case, the hireling receives for his services a stipulated sum of money. In the other, the slave has secured to him, by the laws of the land, the necessaries and comforts of life, consisting of food, raiment, protection, etc. Give them their liberty, emancipate them, and place them upon their own resources, 
and all experience proves that not one in ten is capable of providing themselves and their families with the necessaries of life. In either case, the laboring faculty cannot be separated from the body of the laborer. Therefore, it becomes necessary that the person of the servant should be present where the labor is required to be performed. But, continues the objector, suppose it does not suit the serving man to go where the labor is required to be performed. Is he to be forced to go against his will? To this we answer that his is a necessitous condition, and that in yielding to the laws of imperious necessity, he is doing nothing more, is making no greater sacrifices, than is a large majority of the whole human family compelled, by the same laws of necessity, to make whether they will to do it or not. All are more or less governed by overruling circumstances, and although there may be and there is a great variety of necessities accompanying the various conditions of human life, yet are they equally as imperious and often more severe and uncompromising than are the commands of the master of a slave. Indeed, it is a fact that cannot be denied that the average condition of the slave population of the United States is superior to that, not alone of the manufacturing population of Great Britain and the great masses of European nations generally, and of Mexico, but of a very numerous class of the free white population of the free states of North America. If, then, the philanthropic votaries of abolitionism desire a field in which to exercise their feelings of charity and benevolence, they have it in their own midst, without hazarding any changes of climate or opposition of conflicting interests. Charity is a Christian virtue, a heavenly principle, and one which we wish to see practiced in the utmost ability of every member of the human family. But, under the guidance of modern abolitionists, it reminds us of him who could discern a mote in his brother's eye, without ever having discovered the beam in his own. We hope our neighbors of this class will cast a glance around them, before they attempt to scan the sunny regions of the South. Mexico, we are told, is a free country. Quote, the hateful stigma of slavery attaches not to that delectable region of the earth. Close quote. But this is a mistake, a system of slavery and beggarly oppression, of the most revolting character, has existed in that country from time immemorial. All that class of citizens, who are not landholders, are compelled to labor for their daily subsistence. The wages which they receive for their services are so small that they are forced from necessity to go in debt for the comforts of life. Not being able to liquidate those debts according to agreement, they are, in accordance with the laws of that country, sold to work until their debts are paid. 
but as their wants always exceed their wages, their servitude becomes perpetual, and they are transferred from one to another, without regard to their feelings or happiness. Thus is the great mass of the Mexican people in a state of miserable servitude infinitely more deplorable than that which exists in the United States. No one cares for the wants of the poor Mexican slave. Food, clothing, medicines are not provided by the master. For, should this be done, it would still enhance the amount of indebtedness, and thus rivet still more securely the manacles of his bondage, placing the goal of liberty still further in the distance. Hence is it that this class of the citizens of Mexico are sunk down into a state of hopeless misery, though of the same blood and race of their masters. But we rejoice to know that such is not the condition of the Negro slaves of the United States. Here, the well-being of the slave is a matter of deep interest to the master. Like the venerable patriarchs of olden time, they delight to administer to the wants and happiness of those whom God has committed to their hands. If the slave is sick, a physician administers to his wants. If hungry or naked, he has but to look to his master, who provides what is necessary without any care on the part of the slave. No constable or sheriff dogs his steps, for he is out of debt and free from all responsibility, save that of good and honest behavior. The affairs of government disturb not his mind, and if war invade the land, he is not called to the field of carnage. But the case is far different with the Mexican slave. Contrary to his will, he is pressed into the service and forced to fight the battles of his country, though he own not a foot of soil, nor never can. Surely, then, the condition of the slaves of our southern states is far superior to that of the people of Mexico. But terrible as is the condition of that people, in their state of worse than Russian serfism, the tender-hearted and sympathetic abolitionists are, by their short-sighted policy, urging forward the entire black population of the South to an equally miserable condition. By their policy, the present protective system of slavery would be dissolved, and the whole slave population in the United States emancipated in our midst and thrown upon their own resources for subsistence. What would be the consequence? A state of degradation and misery, similar to that which now exists in Mexico, must inevitably follow. For landholders, to any extent, they can never become. And without this, how are they to be saved from certain misery? Says our objector, this is easily shown. They can hire out, and by their wages sustain themselves and their families, as do other poor men of the land. But this is a conclusion which practical experience does not sustain. The immense number of the slave population, 
amounting to nearly four million and rapidly increasing, would of necessity prevent it. Were this vast host to be made dependent upon their daily wages for a support, it would fail them. They could not compete with the white laborers that would immediately flood the states which they now inhabit. The consequence would be that they would be again cast upon the mercy of the whites, who do now, and always will, compose the landholders of the country. In this condition of things, in order to prevent an unbounded increase of pauperism throughout the entire United States, which in time would certainly ensue, vagrant laws would have to be enacted, by which they would be curtailed in their liberty of wandering from place to place, and thus become in all probability as wretched as the miserable serfs of Mexico. A condition, as we have shown, far more distressing than the present system of slavery can ever bring upon them. There exists but one hope of escape from a fate so dreadful, and death is that hope for it is well known that in all the free states, the blacks have decreased rapidly in numbers. In the state of New York, where they have been free only since 1828, they have decreased in population more than one-half. This is, doubtless, occasioned by their extreme poverty and imprudence towards their infants, which, for want of care, as respects a covering from the elements, suitable food and clothing, and medical attendance, die in great numbers. This last is not a matter of surprise to us at all, as it is but a natural characteristic of the race. The principles of abolitionism are alike subversive of the well-being and happiness of both races. Indeed, not a movement has this political faction ever made that did not tend to increase the degradation and misery of the Negro race. In the state of Kentucky, the removal of slavery has, doubtless, been retarded by their influence not less than ten or twenty years. Besides, the actual condition of the slaves has been made worse by the unhallowed excitement and indignation which it has engendered on the part of the masters, who, becoming naturally enraged at becoming thus unceremoniously molested in their social and domestic affairs, have been forced to deprive their servants of those liberties which they were wont to extend unto them, lest they should be decoyed away by those unprincipled wretches who have shown themselves alike the enemies of both master and slave. It has also prevented, in a multitude of instances, masters from learning their slaves to read, a blessing which many a Christian master would gladly have extended to his slaves, had he not been thus prevented. To the slaves we would say, Regard not the abolitionist as your friend for such he is far from being. The best friend you have on earth is a kind master or mistress, whom you can all secure by faithfully doing your duty, 
serve them faithfully, be content with your lot, and give no heed to those who would take you from your homes, and God will reward you for it. We once supposed that the principle upon which the abolitionists acted in the matter of Negro emancipation was a good and virtuous principle. But long have we had reason to think otherwise. The leaders of this unhallowed faction are bold to assert that to better the condition of a black man is not their object. To free the soil of what they term the odium of slavery is the end and aim of all their operations. And whether this improve or injure the condition of the black man is a matter about which they care not. Clear the soil of the stain of slavery is the cry, no matter how great the cost or how vast the sacrifice. If a division of the union of the states or civil war be the result, let it come, we heed it not. Thus are we forced to believe that, of all the factions and evil influences which conspire to undermine and subvert the grand superstructure of American liberty, that termed modern abolitionism is the most dangerous and fearful. That there are many honest-hearted men in the party who are actuated by pure sympathy for the slave, in what they have been erroneously taught to believe, is the unhappy and oppressed condition in which he is placed, we freely admit. But these people are deceived. They have allowed themselves to be duped and imposed upon by corrupt and unprincipled demagogues, who are prompted by no other than a desire to build up their own fame and fortunes upon the ruins of those of the honorable and unsuspecting of our land. That they are deceived is proven from the fact that nine-tenths of those who travel through the southern states and see the slave contented and happy in the enjoyment of that liberty and those blessings which a humane and Christian master delights to provide for those entrusted to his care, return fully convinced that the servant is the happier of the two, and that to change their relations might be a benefit to the master, but not to the slave. Had the masses of the abolition party the opportunity of making these observations personally, we honestly believe that the universal conclusion of all the good and virtuous would be the same. The average condition of the free blacks of the North will not bear a comparison with that of the slaves of the South. Were we to advocate the removal of slavery at all, we should be actuated rather out of sympathy for the master than the slave. That there are evils growing out of the institution of slavery, we do not deny. And that it is liable to abuses, as is every other institution of divine appointment, we are free to admit. We go further. We admit that it is a moral and political evil of vast magnitude, as is proven by the low state of public morals in the South, and by a comparison of the slave states with the free, 
in general improvement and prosperity. But, as the history of its every movement, from the period it was first ushered into life in the British House of Lords, to the present time, abundantly testifies, abolitionism is inadequate to the task of its removal. Nay, as we have shown, all its operations only tend to rivet more securely the manacles of the slave, and perpetuate the institutions of slavery. How unreasonable, how contrary to the dictates of common sense and strict propriety, that its advocates should continue to urge its claims upon the people of the United States. In view of all this, and of the fact that it is a thing of British origin, of lordly birth, nursed in the cradle of despotism, and fed by the hand of royal aristocracy, as has been every opposing principle and plot against American republicanism, we cannot but regard the leaders, at least, of this unhallowed faction, this dissevering principle of strife and contention, as the worst enemies of our country, nay, as traitors to the government, whose very existence is hazardous to the well-being and prosperity of the nation. The time is not far distant, we trust, when they will be led to see the error of their ways, and to turn from their folly. When this is done, and this unhallowed and unnatural war upon southern interests and institutions shall cease, we believe that the natural goodness of heart, the wisdom, philanthropy, and Christianity of the people of the slave states will lead them either to devise a plan for the complete removal of slavery, in harmony with the interests and feelings of both master and slave, or so ameliorate the physical, moral, and intellectual condition of the slaves, that their separation from their masters would, like that of Hagar from Abraham, partake more of cruelty and persecution than of kindness and Christian charity. Many are bold to affirm that they would rather dissever the Union than fail in their warfare against slavery. But were this to be accomplished, an event which we pray the Lord may never happen, slavery, if affected at all by it, would but be perpetuated. The condition of the slave, if changed at all thereby, would be for the worse. The North would open her arms with still greater boldness to those who could make their escape from their masters, and the result would be a curtailing of the usual liberties of the slave, and the adoption of a system of servitude far more rigid and severe. This the operations of that party have already effected to a very considerable extent, and as they increase in numbers and in the boldness of their attacks, will continue to effect, to an extent that will cause the slave to curse the day that gave birth to abolitionism. Having now, as we believe, given a true history of the origin of the Negro race, of his character, morally and physically, the nature of Noah's curse, its endorsement by Moses in the law, 
the fortunes of the race in past ages as well as in the present times we desist from further remarks having done what we can toward allaying the conflict now raging between the slavery and anti-slavery classes of the great public believing that good men whose consciences have been formed by reading the scriptures on this subject will honor the source of their education by soothing all in their power the unhappy ferment and thus if possible prevent the separation of the states and a horrible civil war in america which were it to happen would be the joy of all the monarchies of europe and their friends in the united states but in closing this work we ought not perhaps to hide it that the feelings the sympathies the education and preconceived principles of the writer have once been all at war with the facts brought from the bible on the subject of negro slavery but now we feel the amazing importance of bowing these prejudices to the word of god submitting with all lowliness of mind this mysterious matter to a higher adjudication than is to be found among men in which frame of spirit we must remain till a stronger light than hitherto has shone on the mind of the author shall irradiate his understanding in relation to the principles advanced in this book respecting the fortunes of the race of ham we desire it to be understood that in all we have said in this work we have had an eye to truth so far as we could ascertain it and that we have not written a word from prejudice against the people of the blacks having exhibited them as we have found them for which we feel no manner of accountability as the difference in all respects between the negro and the white race as to the physical and mental being is of god the creator here ends our labor whether good or bad of which our pen assures that she is glad and if light is shed on the misty space of ancient times and the dark negro race then we rejoice but if not then we mourn and know not where for truth our face should turn but as a vessel sent the winds to brave we launch this book upon the public wave where rocks and shoals may cross its dubious way and dash its sides and sails amid the spray and yet this may not be its final fate though many who may read may also hate yet some perhaps may love of thinking men and justify the author and his pen should this be so which hope our thoughts inspire a better goal than this we can't desire end of chapter 15